Good morning. My name is Norbert. I'm pastor of Point of Grace Church. If this is your first time, I'd like to welcome you. We see ourselves as a small church with a big heart, so I hope that you will experience that today, this Sunday. Well, we just, uh, I trust that you had a very good spring break. Did you guys go somewhere? Yeah? Um, my family and I drove north to D.C., and we experienced a lot of things, but my daughter keep on asking, are we there yet? Just after an hour of driving, are we there yet? <laughs> God has given us a lot of things, a lot of blessings, and we praise God for that. Now, I'm not sure if this is you, but let me know. But when people try to read the Bible, they're overwhelmed and they won't know how to start. If you've seen the printed Bible, I know a lot of us have Bible apps and, you know, Bible in our iPads, but the printed Bible is as thick as this. And some people, when they try to read the Bible, they get overwhelmed and they won't know how to start. Some people would start in the book of Psalms, some in the, the Gospels, some try to start from the very beginning, the book of Genesis. So I think the best way to read the Bible is to read the Bible as a long novella. Or some of us here are, are, very, are always watching series in Netflix, so think of the Bible as a long telenovela. A series of stories, but there's one grand narrative. So think about seasons. Think about the book of Genesis, season one, all about Moses, Exodus up to Deuteronomy, season two. Joshua is season three. Judges is season four, and the book of Samuel, and all the kings in the Old Testament is season five. We are now in season five. We are preaching a text from 1 Samuel chapter 11. Now, if you came here at season five, you will have to read back to season one, two, three, and four to be able to understand what's happening in season five. But if this is your first time, last week, a little recap. Chapter 10, the people of Israel already has a king. Their king is God. His name is Yahweh. I don't usually say God because when we say God, a lot of people have their own definitions of God. So I say when I say God, I mean Yahweh. So the people of Israel already has a king, and their king's name is Yahweh. Yahweh is their God. But they wanted to be like all the nations, so they asked to replace God as king. They wanted the human king. This is this is in contravention to God's plan for them. But what's interesting is that God granted their request. So in chapter 10, a king was chosen. Saul was chosen as king among the people. But all of them knew, even Saul knew, that they cannot replace God as king. Nobody can replace what God is doing as king. So that means this season, when they all had kings in Israel and Judah, will become like a wilderness experience to them where they will suffer the consequences of asking God the wrong thing. The main premise of all the kings in the Old Testament is asking God the wrong thing because asking God for a king is like saying, God, I reject you as my king. Let me begin with 1 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. If you have your Bibles, cell phones, iPads, or printed Bibles, turn with me. 1 Samuel 11, 1 through 3. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, said to them, On this condition, 
I will make a treaty with you that I will gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. And the elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves to you. Now, you might think this might be a small, simple story about a king who's bullying the people of Israel. But if you pay close attention, you might be reading season one. Again, season one is Genesis, a scene from the Garden of Eden. So what I want you to do is to put your thinking caps on and think with me. Do not space out, okay? Think with me as if you're thinking. At least pretend you're thinking. So put your thinking caps on and think about season one, Genesis chapter three, the Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden, God put Adam and Eve in charge. We all know that. But there was a serpent who slithered its way into the Garden of Eden and tricked Adam and Eve. And this is what he said. His goal, the goal of the serpent, is to usurp the authority given to Adam and Eve. See, the authority to manage to administer the Garden of Eden was given to Adam and Eve. And so when the serpent came, he wants to usurp the power. He wants to be king in the Garden of Eden. This is what he said in Genesis 3, verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He was trying to trick Adam and Eve into eating of the fruit. So in season one, the serpent wants their eyes open. But in season five, you will find another serpent in another story. This time, he wants to gouge out their right eyes. Where's the serpent in Samuel 11? The Ammonite king is named Nahash. Nahash is the Hebrew word for serpent. So you see, 1 Samuel 11 is a repetition of Genesis chapter 3. This king, just like the serpent in Eden, is the enemy of the people. What Nahash wants is like what the serpent wants, to usurp the very authority that God has granted on the people. Israel was put in charge of Canaan. That's why it's called the Promised Land. And technically, it's the new Garden of Eden. But this serpent, this Nahash, the king of the Ammonite, wants to usurp their authority. See, the Garden of Eden is like Canaan. Canaan is said to be flowing with milk and honey. So think when you're reading Genesis chapter 2 and 3, the Garden of Eden, it's lush, there are fruits, and they have, they have no need for anything. So think of Canaan, where its description was, a land flowing with milk and honey. They don't need for anything. It's fertile. It's like the Garden of Eden. Second, in the Garden of Eden, there's the presence of God. See, in Canaan, there's also the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant was there. It's the throne of God. It's the new Eden. But there's also the serpent. In Genesis 3, there was a serpent. And in 1 Samuel 11, there's Nahash, the Ammonite king. Now, originally, the Ammonite territories are found in the east of Jordan. But then, if you remember rightly, there were two and a half tribes of Israel who did not want to go into Canaan. They want to stay outside of Canaan. They want to stay outside in the east of Jordan. So they stay there. So technically, the Ammonites have already gained access to the, the, the Eden, to the Canaan, to the promised land. But what's with the gouging of the right eye? Why did Ammonite Nahash wants to gouge out the right eye of every Israelite? According to scholars, most men are right-handed. 
And what they do is when they go to battle, they hold the shields in their left hand. And they peek only with their right eye. So you see, they only expose a small portion of their body. So if their right eye is gouged, then they will have to train their, their arms to hold the shield on the right. So what Nahash wants is to make them incapable warriors, but make them capable slaves. This is evil and strategic. Look at verse 2. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I will gouge out your right eyes and thus bring this grace on all Israel. Let's talk about this grace for a second. See, the battle plan of the enemy did not change. In season one, the serpent tricked Adam and Eve, and they found themselves naked and ashamed. In other words, disgraced. It's the same concept in 1 Samuel 11, disgraced. And then God cast them out of the Garden of Eden, another word for disgraced. So in the same way, the serpent, King Nahash, wants to disgrace the people of Israel. Imagine this. What would it look like to have all the men in one city with one eye missing? I mean, it's a disgrace. The serpent king wants them to be slaves. In the same way, what the devil wants for us is to be slaves to take away our ability to discern, to take away your ability to fight and become a slave forever. There is a modern word for slaves, addiction. See, when the scriptures talk about pornea or pornography or adultery or vices, it always talks about them in the context of addiction. When the scriptures talk about sin, there's always an imagery of slavery to sin, addiction, as if one can just simply stop on sinning it's addictive to lie, to cheat, to succumb to our personal desires. In other words, it's addiction. Now, we may not be using illegal drugs. We may not be addicted to alcohol. But some of us cannot take our eyes from social media. Yes? We cannot seem to control ourselves. So we scroll down endlessly. We get jealous seeing other people's vacation photos and their OOTD. What's OOTD? Outfit of the day and what they're doing on that day. So when we get jealous, we post our own photos, but we check every minute to see how many likes we get. See, some of us would even put our own thumbs up on our own photos so that we can gather more, more likes. Neuroscientists call this a chronic brain disease because it wreaks havoc in our dopamine reward system. The scriptures call this, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, a sickness. Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. This addiction is sickness. This is what we are in right now, and the devil wants us here, to be here, to be slaves of him forever. See, the goal of the enemy is to make us remain slaves. The enemy hates that we are made in the image of God. The enemy hates so that he will do everything he can to spoil that image of holiness. Think about what's happening right now. See, the problem with sex and gender and race can all be traced back to the issue of God's image. If the enemy can erase that image of God in you, then he wins. See, the more we are confused and fighting each other, the more we are unable to live according to God's image. 
The more men and women fight for equality, the more husband and wives fight for dominance, the more we get farther away and reflect God's image in us. If marriage ends in divorce, raising children will become difficult. Children will grow without fathers. If you read the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Proverbs, you will find that the command to raise children are given primarily to fathers. Fathers, listen now. I'm not saying that mothers are not capable of raising children. What I'm saying is that the main task of discipline falls on the fathers in the house. Fathers are not just for earning money and fixing broken things in the house. Anyone say amen to that? Fathers are not just for decorations. You are there for a reason. Your role is very important in raising godly children. And therefore, you cannot just stay quiet and let the mothers do all the scolding while you are enjoying your favorite drink in front of the television. See, the reason why Adam and Eve failed because Adam was just listening to his wife while the serpent was deceiving his wife. He did not do anything. It's called passivity. See, passivity is dangerous to our health. Brothers, we've got to step up. Let me talk to the fathers. Fathers, you have to fight, fight your way back in. To take, away, to take back leadership and discipleship in the home. Mothers, you will model femininity and womanhood by how you cooperated with your husband. Because your original design was to be a helpmeet like Eve. Broken marriage, broken family, broken relationship is the battle plan of the enemy. And that will bring disgrace even to the church. It's the same strategy of Nahash, to gouge out the right eye so that they will not be capable to fight anymore, to become slaves forever. So Nahash the serpent threatened the Israelites and the messengers reported back to their king. Saul was king at that time in chapter 11. But look at what he was caught doing in chapter 11, verse 5. It says, now behold. Now every time you, word, you read the Bible and you come across, behold, you have to pay attention. There's something going on in here. So it says, now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. What is he doing? What is a king doing behind the oxen in the field? Why was he plowing the field? Why was he not acting like a king? Because he knew for a fact, and it's obvious, Saul cannot replace Yahweh on the throne. He doesn't know how. He doesn't know how to do it. But as soon as Saul heard the news, something happened to him and the whole nation of Israel. Listen to verse 6. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard this news. I underline specifically the Spirit of God because that's the main emphasis of the verse. The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. And his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and set them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to these oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. What you will find here. It's called holy indignation. When their spirit rushed on him, he became angry. Now, we're familiar with the fruits of the spirit, right? Joy, peace, patience, etc. Okay, all those things does not have any anger in them. So that means we seldom associate the Holy Spirit to anger. 
It's almost like anger is bad and therefore Jesus was never angry. It's not true. You'll find many instances where Jesus was angry, literally angry. So when we say we want, we want to be like Jesus, we have this wrong assumption that becoming like Jesus means we cannot become angry. See, if you read the Gospels, you will find that there are several locations where Jesus Christ himself was angry. If you can recreate the scenario, just after the triumphal entry, Jesus went straight to the temple and cleansed the temple. You know that story, right? But let's try to recreate the scenario without anger. So Jesus came to the temple and said, Amazing people of Israel, I know that you need to feed your families by doing business inside the temple, but remember this is the house of God. So I have written a petition to the high priest to give you a relocation, but for now, please exit the temple. That did not happen. It's not in the Bible. In fact, what the Bible said, he drove out and overturned the tables of the money changers. He was mad and angry. This is called holy indignation. The language was violent as if he was the bouncer in the temple. You know the guys? The big guys standing outside the bars and nightclubs? The bouncers. Jesus was like the bouncer. When Jesus went to the temple, he forcibly evicted all those engaging in sacrilege. This is called holy indignation or righteous anger. Righteous anger is born out of understanding of God's justice and God's holiness. You see, you have a trickle on this. See, when you watch a movie and you see the bad guys bullying the innocent, there's something in you. you you're angry. You can feel a sense of injustice. Why? Because we have the image of God. We have that in us. But see, Jesus, it's different. He felt this holy indignation because they're desecrating the very house of God. So Saul had the Holy Spirit in him, and he felt the Holy Spirit rush on him. So he chopped off his oxen 12 different ways and sent them all over Israelites. And then the dread of the Lord went to the people, and they acted as one. They mustered an army of about more than 300,000 soldiers, fought the enemy, and won. That's the end of the story. At the end of the battle, there's one definitive conclusion in verse 12 and 13. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Saul, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. This is very interesting. This is not an exaggeration. Paul, Saul, sorry, Saul understood that they won not because of the 300 plus thousand soldiers. They won because the salvation came from the Lord. In fact, he's the one who said, the Lord does work salvation in Israel. This is not about him. This is not about the people of Israel. This is about the salvation of God. All the battles belong to God. Now, let me bring the scriptures together. In season five, we have the story of the serpent trying to usurp the rights of the Israelites in the land of Canaan. He wants to bring disgrace by gouging out the right eye. That's sort of a trademark. Now, season three is about Joshua. The moment Joshua crossed the Jordan River, God commanded him to circumcise all the men in Israel. And then there's another Hebrew word that came out. This word disgrace or reproach in Hebrew word is karpah. Listen to Joshua chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. 
when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach. It's another word for disgrace. The word is kerpa. Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. The disgrace has been rolled away, has been taken away. That word is very interesting because the same disgrace word was used in 1 Samuel 11, the gouging of the right eye. But in here, season 3, the circumcision is the rolling away of the reproach. You see, for 400 years, Israel has been slaves in Egypt. 400 years. They did not work for free. I mean, come on. 400 years a slave. And now, right after they crossed the Jordan River, entered their own territory, the kingdom of God, they were circumcised to give the mark of God so that their disgrace will be taken away. See, if you think about it, in season one, there's a serpent in the garden. In season five, there's another serpent, Hash, in the land of Canaan. But you see, in season two, in Egypt, there's another serpent king. See, the Pharaoh wears a headdress with a serpent on top of it. And what is he doing? He's usurping the rights of the people of Israel. You see, this is a repetition of the story in the long saga of novella of the Bible. The serpent is always against the people of God. The same way, the Spirit of the Lord rushed unto Saul in the dread of the Lord, and they were able to win against the enemy. It's like rolling away the disgrace. Salvation cannot be attributed to Saul. It cannot be attributed to the people, only to Yahweh, which goes back to Genesis chapter 3, season 1. See, the original disgrace goes back to season 1, when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. It's a disgrace. When they ate of the fruit, they saw themselves naked. They were ashamed, disgrace. But there was a prophecy that was pronounced on that day. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This prophecy was directed towards the serpent. God is saying to the serpent, you will have your own seed, the woman will have her own seed, and there will be battle between your seeds, and time will come that you will be crushed on the head by the woman's offspring. So if we are reading season one, and now we are season five, we're asking the same question. Is Saul the seed of the woman? Is he the fulfillment of the prophecy? Because we have the same serpent here, Nahash. Here's the thing. The scriptures is a long novella. See, they are connected to each other. The question is, is Saul the long-awaited offspring? The obvious answer to that is no. He is not the long-awaited offspring that will crush the serpent's head because he himself recognized that salvation belongs to God. He didn't do anything. In fact, after Saul, there were different kings and there were different enemies. We have the Philistines and the Amalekites and the Ammonites and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Romans and so on and so forth. Until today, we have enemies. Israel, until today, has a lot of enemies. Now, what's interesting is that the question would be, who is then the fulfillment of this prophecy? Pay attention to 1 Samuel chapter 11, verses 14 and 15. 
Then Samuel said to the people after winning the war, come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom. And so all the people went to Gilgal. And there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. Because they thought maybe Saul is the promised seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. That's why they crowned Saul as king. But they were wrong. It says they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. What's interesting here is that Gilgal, where they offer sacrifice to God, where they crowned Saul as king, is the same place where Joshua circumcised all the Israelite men to take away all the disgrace, to roll away the disgrace. In fact, Galal is roll away. That's why it's called Gilgal. See, Samuel is trying to redirect the attention of the people. To let them see that it is about God. It's not about Saul. It's not about the 300 plus thousand soldiers who won the victory that day. It's about Yahweh, their king. Renewing the kingdom is about the kingdom of God. It's not about the kingdom of Saul. It's not about the kingdom of men. It's about the kingdom of God. Because Canaan belongs to God. He is king over the land. It's Yahweh and not any king. So the question becomes, who has rolled away the disgrace of Egypt? Yahweh. Who has rolled away the disgrace and the threats of Nahash, the king? Again, it's Yahweh. So by going back to Gilgal, Samuel is directing the people to focus on God, their ultimate savior. See, here's the thing with stories in the Bible. If we think that we're reading about David and Joshua and Gideon and Daniel, we think that we have to be like them. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is pointing to God. God is the main protagonist in the story. Saul is just a supporting actor. David is just a supporting actor. We should not become like David or Gideon or Samson. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that Yahweh is king. Yahweh is the main savior in the story because from the beginning to end, Yahweh remains king. So the question of offspring. Who will be the offspring of the woman? If not Abraham, if not Moses, if not Joshua, if not Saul, who is the offspring of the woman? If the first Adam fell for the trick of the serpent, will the second Adam overcome it? Now, you find the first Adam in the Garden of Eden, he was passive. He was watching the serpent converse with his wife, and his wife was deceived, and they both failed. He failed the test of leadership. He also failed the test of obedience. But you see, the second Adam is very different. You will also find the second Adam in the Garden at night. Thursday night, he was praying because he knew his time is up. And he was about to be arrested and crucified the following day. So he was praying. His prayer was so intense that the Bible said his sweat became like drops of blood. And his prayer was, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. You see, that night, before they went to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus hosted the Passover. He gave the cup of wine, the fruit of the tree, to his disciples, and he said, this is my blood. So he knew for a fact what will happen to him that night. He knew for a fact that he will be arrested, and he will be crucified, and he will die. He knows that. And yet in the garden, he was praying, Father, remove this cup from me, if you're willing. 
Why was Jesus saying that? Is he trying to change his mind? Of course not. We're talking about Jesus Christ. We're talking about Jesus Christ. But who is Jesus really? Why was he asking the Father to remove this cup when for, in fact, he knows? He will do it. He will sacrifice his life on the cross. Because we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about the Alpha and the Omega, the water of life, the bread of life. He is about to experience death. What this means is that he will not just taste the cup of wine. He will also taste the cup of death. That is the struggle. The source of life has never tasted death. See, the obedient Son of God who has never sinned will be executed on the cross. That is the struggle of Jesus Christ. So the question is, is Jesus Christ the offspring of the woman, the long-awaited king who will crush the serpent's head? Will he fulfill the prophecy to end all the enmity? How can this simple carpenter turned king fulfill the fulfillment of this prophecy? The answer to that is Sunday morning. Look at Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. It says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Why? Because he's dead. He's in the tomb. And very early on the first day of the week, it's not Monday, it's Sunday, when the sun had risen, it's daybreak, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, pay attention, who will roll away the stone for us? There he goes again. Gilgal, who will roll away the disgrace? Did you see that phrase again? The women are asking, who will roll? Because they're women, they're weak. They cannot roll a big stone that's closing, that's in front of the tomb. So they were asking, who will roll away? But if you think carefully, if you think about season one, Genesis 3, you think about season three, Joshua chapter five, they're actually asking, who will roll away the symbol of disgrace? Because the tomb symbolizes a dead savior, a dead king, a failed project of salvation to rescue the Israelites. Who will roll away the stone, this kind of disgrace? Now, we know the story. When they arrived, the stone was already rolled over. According to Matthew, an angel came from heaven and rolled the stone away. See, the stone was rolled away, not because Jesus cannot. The stone was rolled away so that the world will see that death has no power over Jesus. The stone was rolled away so that we will know that Jesus Christ has overcome the shame and disgrace. That's the point of an open tomb. And Apostle Peter had a better understanding of what happened here. He had the whole story in his pocket. So he explains the connection between circumcision, the rolling away of disgrace, and baptism of Jesus Christ. Listen to him very carefully. Colossians chapter 2, 11 and 12. He said, In him you were also circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. How can we be circumcised without hands by putting off the body of flesh? He explains further in verse 12, having buried with him in baptism. Ah, there you go. 
The rolling away, the circumcision of us is not physical. It's spiritual. It's a symbol of our baptism. Because baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. See, circumcision is the language of Joshua in Gilgal, season 3. Baptism is the symbol of, is the language of John the Baptist. That's in Jesus' time. But baptism is also the symbol of burial and resurrection. That's why we get baptized. In baptism, we die. And from the water, we rise again. Resurrection of the dead. But why did Jesus went for baptism when he, for in fact, did not have to repent? What is baptism for? What Paul is saying here is that his baptism was not about repentance. His baptism was a dramatization of his death and resurrection. When he went to John and he saw John baptizing people for repentance, he said to John, let's do this because it's the will of God. He wants to show the world what he will do. He knows his main mission is to die on the cross. That's why, in fact, when he was baptized, the voice of the Father said from heaven, this is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. His baptism was not about repentance. His baptism was a dress rehearsal for Lent and Easter. Do you see that? But to us, the rolling away of the stone will become the mark of our true liberation. You see, his resurrection will become the symbol of Gilgal, where disgrace of sin has been rolled away. That means the sin has no longer claim over us. The devil has no longer claim over us. Death has no longer claim over us. If you are baptized, if you claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, that means your death has been canceled. The sin has been canceled. Listen to Apostle Paul, verse 13 and 14. He said, And you were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This is set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put to open shame by triumphing over them in him. See, on the cross, he was not just suffering by himself. On the cross, he was nailing the very list of deaths that we have. So that means on the cross, he was fighting for rolling away that disgrace that we have in our body. Jesus didn't just suffer aimlessly. It was a canceling of death. See, the verse 15 says, He disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. This is very, very interesting because he has reversed the disgrace. Before we are disgraced because we sin. But on the cross, when he put the authorities and the enemy in open shame, he has reversed that condition of disgrace. Now they are disgraced and we are not. This is, according to Paul, the offspring of the woman crushing down the head of the serpent. He has triumphed over the enemy. See, by passing the ultimate test of obedience, by drinking of the cup of judgment, Jesus is able to cancel our debts. What do we say about the king? Only a king can have the authority to grant clemency. Only a king can cancel debts. So that means in Jesus, the true fashion of a king 
canceled the record of deaths on the cross and the open tomb was proof of that. When Prophet Samuel led the people of Israel to Gilgal to renew the kingdom, we have to think about the same kingdom that Jesus preached. Behold, the kingdom of God is, is at hand. This is the same kingdom where Jesus is king. We're not just talking about Canaan or Israel or Palestine. We're talking about the whole world. So when Jesus ascended to heaven, he said, All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go into all the world. It's not just go into Israel or go to the Philippines. It's to all the world. See, if Jesus is king, he must be king of all. See, if you look around, you will see that the economy is failing. We have inflation. We have death all around. Last Saturday, there's a tornado in Mississippi. 26 people died instantly. One community was flattened. How is this reflecting on the kingship of Jesus Christ? You see, if you look around, the only hope that we have really is in Jesus. When all things are crumbling, you don't look to the bankers or the scientists or the doctors or the politicians. You only look to Jesus. Because Jesus Christ is the only one who offers resurrection. He's the only one who offers hope of resurrection. Why? Because He's the only one who has overcome death. None of all the religious leaders all over the world has overcome death. Only Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, is not just our Savior. He is also our King. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great truth that you are King, not just our Savior. Father, we confess that sometimes we only see your Savior that we only come to you when we need help. Forgive us. Allow us to see, Father, that you are more than a Savior, that you are also our King, that we follow you because you have rolled away the disgrace of sin in our lives, that you have canceled our debts of sin in us, and that you have granted us clemency. Father, will you allow us to be faithful followers and disciples of Jesus Christ? In Jesus' name, amen.